I was in no rush to embrace a religion, which would have meant alienating most of my friends. And it did. And I lost, um, some very close, good friends of mine who, the moment I said my Shahada refused to ever speak to me again. Mm. And, uh, that was quite hurtful. And, um, and they just wouldn't, they wouldn't talk about it. It was not like we had an argument and a row. They just, ref they, they were so appalled by what I did that they refused to speak to me ever again. Mm. So, and, and I suspected something like that would happen because some of my Christian friends, you know, were quite Islamophobic as well. And I crossed over to the enemy camp, so to speak, in their point of view. So, um, ultimately I did say the Shahada, um, and, uh, Islam answered many of the profound problems I had within Christianity. Islam had the answers to them, which is again, amazing. I didn't expect any other religion to actually have answers to the problems, like problem of evil. Islam has, uh, the problem of suffering has, has real answers, which Christianity unfortunately doesn't have. Assalamu alaikum all. And I think there's one way I can start this podcast and that's by saying today I am delighted to be joined by brother Paul Williams. You're most welcome, sir. Oh dear. Oh, cliche, cliche. That's very good. Thank you so much <laughs> for uh, inviting me on. I recognize the copyrighted terms you've just made, so I'll be suing you. But no, it's uh, wonderful. Thanks for having me on. It's a great honor to have you on this podcast. On this podcast, I like to interview inspirational Muslims and find out more about their background and also their personalities so that it can be a means of inspiration for other Muslims, especially young Muslims. So take me back to say, if I was one of your high school friends, let's say, how would they describe you or how were you at a young age in terms of your personality and how would you describe yourself? Gosh, I, I wasn't, I didn't realize this would be a, a psychoanalytic <laughs> session. Um, so how would they, um, okay. Um, at school, I was a bit of a failure actually academically. Um, I didn't like, uh, school much, uh, at all. Um, the few exceptions, uh, but most of my reading and my studying, I just did privately and I was intensively interested in studying philosophy and history, politics and so on, but that had no relevance at all to what I was doing at school where I was a bit of a failure. So, um, I think my schoolmates would have seen me as a, a relatively unintelligent um, dullard who I didn't have much of a future, I suspect. And, uh, I'm not saying you were wrong either, but, um, it didn't really reflect what was going on the rest of my life privately. There was a disconnect between the two. So this is a very psychoanalytical subject and, uh, <laughs> um, but no, it was, that's how I perceive it anyway. Mm. No, that's great. So you were always into, it's interesting to note that you were always into reading and philosophy. Um, so that's been a long-standing interest of yours and it's obviously translated into the work that you do now. Yeah. Okay. Can you take me through your journey into religious beliefs, um, in terms of where you started and all the way up to embracing Islam? Yeah. I, I, I mean, apologies in advance is not an interesting story. So, um, I remember, I think I was 22, 21, cycling back from a party one Sunday morning, a party in South London where I lived and, um, uh, and I was an atheist at that time. And, um, I, I was going up a, a street in Islington and I, I saw a very beautiful building. Um, it was a lovely day, Sunday morning, and it was a church, St. Mary's church, uh, church of England. 
uh, beautiful kind of classical building. So I actually went inside just to have a look around. And I remember um, having, uh, I can't, I, I don't remember there was a service going on. I, I don't know. I can't remember, but I remember having a very powerful experience of what I understood to be God's love, but it was a very external force that kind of impacted from me from outside. It wasn't something that came from within my heart or uh, uh, in my own being. And it was so powerful that I actually couldn't, didn't like it. It was too much. And I actually just literally ran out of the building and, but it, it was quite unexpected and quite, um, shocking in a way. And, uh, I didn't know what to do with this experience because I wasn't a Christian. I wasn't a believer at all. I was an atheist, as I say. Um, but it was, it seemed to be at least a possible experience of God's love coming quite powerfully in my direction. So of course I went back there the following Sunday, hoping for a repeat performance and nothing happened, of course. Um, and, um, I think it was an experience, a spiritual experience, an authentic one, I think. Um, but it set me uh, on a spiritual journey and because of my upbringing as a, as a, as a, so I didn't have a Christian upbringing, but in my school, it was a Christian school, I suppose, uh, nominally Christian. That was the only kind of spiritual path that I related to and understood. So I eventually went to my local church. Um, and, um, after a couple of years of thinking and reading the Bible and stuff, I did, I did become a Christian, um, in the evangelical tradition. Um, there's a great emphasis on God's love and fellowship and spiritual experience. So that kind of not nicely fit in with my own uh, spiritual awakening. Um, but it, it, and that was great, but it, it was problematic because at the same time, because I was, I've always been an avid reader. I, I of course started to read the Bible, um, which I had no knowledge of. So, um, and that was great. And some of it was really inspiring and moving. And, uh, I encountered it as God's word to me, the Bible, but there were other bits of the Bible which disturbed me and raised questions, awkward questions, um, about, you know, who was Jesus and, and so on. And, um, that, that, that sent me on a new journey of looking for answers, which inevitably I, I went to books for, I, I did go to my pastor for answers. I didn't really get any answers, unfortunately. And that was a bit worrying. Um, so, um, I, I went to biblical commentaries and other things, and I became aware of a whole world called biblical scholarship. Uh, which raised yet more questions, which I didn't even know were issues. Um, just, just example, the reliability or the unreliability of the gospels, for example, particularly the gospel of John. Um, and th this ended up me having quite a schizophrenic experience of being a Christian. On the one hand, I was a committed Christian. I believe that Jesus was Lord and I had a born again experience. I can date it. I can tell you when I became a born again Christian. Um, I went to church on Sundays and I prayed every day and read the Bible, etc. And I believed that Jesus was God and I believed in the Trinity. I believe the Bible was inspired word of God, etc. But on the other hand, I was aware of these quite difficult questions, which called into, into doubt some of, some of these beliefs in quite serious ways. Um, and, uh, these issues ultimately led to, um, me being quite, uh, I used to see myself as kind of a disabled Christian. It was like, I couldn't function properly. There was, yes, I was a Christian, but I couldn't walk, um, in a very confident way anymore. I, I was kind of, um, um, and the, the Islam came on the scene when, um, after some years of being a Christian and ultimately I became a Catholic actually when I was at university studying. Christian theology, I, um, 
for those reasons, I, I embrace Catholicism. Um, and my, one of my tutors in patristics, um, who's now sadly passed away, um, received me into the Catholic church in Mayfair. Um, but a year or so after that, I was becoming quite Islamophobic for a whole bunch of reasons to do with where I'm living. And, um, and I decided to just go to my local mosque to learn more about Islam. Uh, and that mosque was Regent's Park Mosque, which is probably the most famous mosque in London, probably. Um, and this is my local one. And, um, and, and there with no intention of converting, of course, it was, you know, why would I convert to Islam? <laughs> um, I was a Christian. Um, but I, I discovered something I'd never really experienced before. And that is real Islam from actual Muslims who knew the faith. And, um, so I read the Quran in English translation from cover to cover. I argued with some of them, you know, about who Jesus was, cause I was a Christian. Um, but then I discovered there were other ways of understanding God, other ways of understanding Jesus, and also a, a, a fantastically rich spiritual tradition in Islam, um, which at the very least is equally deep and amazing and rich and profound and attractive as anything I found in Christianity. So, you know, in Christianity, we have St. John of the Cross, we have the works of St. Augustine, we have the Imitation of Christ by Tim Thomas Akempis, St. Augustine's books, Confession, we have the Cloud of Unknowing, Julian of Norwich, just going through a list of famous mystics, if you like, in the, in the Christian tradition, and many, many more, which I've read. But to find a parallel tradition to that in Islam was Remarkable. Why? Because I believe that only through Christianity or through Jesus was there authentic, real Christianity. All the other religions are based on works, righteousness, and all this false stuff I've been told about other religions. It's not true, obviously, about Islam. So I, I and then the jewel in this, the thing I really didn't expect to find, the jewel in Islam for me then, and still is in some ways, is this man called Muhammad on him being to actually learn about this most extraordinary of human beings was a real stunning revelation. I thought, wow, you know, why haven't I been told about him before? Um, and so I read Martin Ling's celebrated Sira, mm -hmm. its biography in English, which I really recommend. Yeah. Um, and that was an astonishing eye opener. And of course, then I had this dilemma. Okay, if Jesus, sorry, God, if Jesus was sent by God, which obviously I did believe as a Christian, Muhammad, what, you know, he had all the characteristics of authentic messenger, prophet of God, his life, his teaching, his personality, his integrity, his, his sheer amazingness. Um, by what right did I have to affirm the former, not the latter, as sent by God? And this was the dilemma. So I came to the conclusion, actually, they're both sent by God. I know it sounds obvious to Muslims, but to me, it was a difficult, difficult path to tread and to actually come to that point because Islam is associated with, as I thought, you know, Arabs, the Middle East, it's not British, it's not English, you know, all these kind of cultural baggage that I had. And so it wasn't just, just a simple intellectual exercise. If, if I accept that Muhammad was a prophet of God, that had consequences for my life and boy, did it have consequences for my life. <laughs> So, um, ultimately I did say the Shahada, um, and, uh, Islam answered many of the profound problems I had within Christianity. Islam had the answers to them, which is again, amazing. I didn't expect any other religion to actually have answers to the problems, like problem of evil. Islam has, uh, the problem of suffering has, has real answers, which Christianity unfortunately doesn't have. And I don't say that with any, I wish it, I wish Christianity would take these answers and just 
use them, but it doesn't, it just ignores them. Um, so, I mean, that, that's kind of a very short, uninteresting explanation of how I got to saying the Shahada. Uh, there were no miraculous events. No, you know, it was a process that took a lot of time. Mm. No, that's very interesting. So a couple of follow-up questions from that is, it's interesting to note that you, you describe yourself that you had some Islamophobic, let's say, tendencies because that yeah. story mirrors um, other guests that you've had on your podcast, like the Dutch politician and okay. others that seem to go from this extreme um, of hating yes. Islam to loving Islam in a sense. And then there's also um, normally, I think, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf's story about his um, kind of interaction of religion was a near death experience. But oftentimes, mm. I had them, um, I did put a post up on my YouTube community asking what questions people would like you to answer. Um, and one that's somewhat related to this was there was um, Brother Yusuf who asked, many Christians now base their belief on encounters with the Lord or visions. What do you think they mean by that? And I think you've kind of um, explained that. I think it's hard to explain. But I've also experienced a lot of Christians, they do seem to... Um, have a belief based on a very personal kind of experience. Um, so I don't know what, what you'd like to add to that, if anything. No, I think that's right. That, that, is a, that is a distinctive feature of much of Christianity is that what makes it true uh, and, uh, and authentic for the believer is spiritual experiences. So for the Muslim, it may be a, a belief, a, a, a certainty that God exists and that uh, the Quran is from God and, and, and so on. But it's, I don't, as to, it might be true for some Sufis, Al-Ghazali famously, of course, uh, achieved certainty of faith by having a, um, an experience, a religious experience. And I'm not knocking that, but, um, for most Christians, this is a thing that really, they, they had this, I mean, I, I've met very, um, um, committed Christian missionaries who will say to me in all seriousness, and these are, some of these people are very intelligent people. I will mention their names, but, um, will say to me in all seriousness, well, I'm a Christian because I had a dream, you know, I went to bed, I uh, had a dream and they tell me about this fairly obscure dream, which kind of doesn't really make much sense to me. And you say, yeah, but this means that Jesus is real and died for my sins. And therefore I'm now a Christian because of this. And I'm going to dedicate my life to this religion. And I'm thinking, I I'm, I'm so underwhelmed by what you've just said. And I, I, you know, it would be nice if it was more substantial, something I could really get my head around, but it's not, it, it's very subjective and it's based on this experience and which often you had a dream. I mean, uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't base my life on dreams, the decisions in my waking life on dreams that I have, unless they were really, really exceptional. I'm not having exceptional dreams like that ever. I don't, I don't think so. It, 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 but this is characteristic of a lot of Christianity, whereas Islam and the Quran itself invites one to reflect and to think to use your mind, to, to reason, you know, look at the ayat, the, the, the signs of God in the universe, to come to a conclusion, to waken your fitra, to, uh, you know, to remind us, it's not a new thing, to remind us of the existence of God, a creator, uh, and to reflect on uh, the afterlife uh, and the, the day of judgment and, uh, and so on. Uh, it, it's quite um, rooted in actual substantial realities. Um, so yeah, there is that difference. Mm. Uh, I, I would say uh, there are a lot of Christians are not like how I've described it. Some are much more intellectually orientated, um, and some have never had any experiences and just go out of 
because our forefathers did it and my parents mm. did it and I'm brought up in a Christian house, therefore I'm going to do it. Um, so they're not all like that, but a, a really big number are, and it seems to be quite typical. You know, you ask them, why are you a Christian? Ah, oh, well, 20 years ago, I was sitting in a field and I had this amazing vision. Okay. And that's why you're a Christian. Okay. Mm. You won't find, I don't find Muslims talking like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think just reflecting on the recent interview that Jordan Peterson had, um, with the Sapiens Institute, and I was just yeah. thinking perhaps if he had a similar story of personal experience, it would have been easier for him to navigate at least that discussion, but because he was coming yeah. at it from like the rational perspective, he, he was yeah. just, uh, he was left in that position of just saying that, um, he didn't really have that answer or he didn't have something to rely on. Um, so yeah, how you went on, what seems like you were always interested in books and you went on like an intellectual journey. How long would you yeah. describe that period of kind of wrestling with Islam, going back and forth before actually accepting it? So the moment you walked in. About a year and a half. Okay. It was about a year and a half. It was quite a long time, mm. actually. And I, I, mean, I, I was in no rush to embrace a religion, which would have meant alienating most of my friends. And it did. And I lost uh, some very close, good friends of mine who, the moment I said my Shahada, refused to ever speak to me again. Mm. And, um, that was quite hurtful. And, um, and they just wouldn't, they wouldn't talk about it. It was not like we had an argument and a row. They just, ref they, they were so appalled by what I did that they refused to speak to me ever again. Mm. So, and, and I suspected something like that would happen because some of my Christian friends, you know, were quite Islamophobic as well. And I crossed over to the enemy camp, so to speak, in their point of view. So I, I guess I, it's not unexpected, but also culturally, I, I, I realized that I had left one culture and um, well, not left it. I had acquired the possibilities of exploring a new, wholly new culture, uh, or cultures, I should say, and to see, to see the world from that point of view as well. So to take the Middle East, Palestine, Israel, and so on, to begin to understand the, the experiences and the sufferings and the perspective of Muslims and non-Muslims, the Palestinian Christians, for example, as well, um, was something you don't normally do in the West. You, you kind of just take up what Fox news or the daily mail or whatever tell you. But so I was able to see the world from a different point of view. And I really liked that. Actually, I found that really helpful to move from a, um, what a, a recent philosopher who I've been talking about on my channel, um, Alexander Dugin would have called moving from a unipolar perspective, from a multipolar to a multipolar perspective. In other words, seeing things from different points of view. I've always found that a fascinating thing to undertake is to look for, for different perspectives, not necessarily embracing them, but understanding that people do, do see, see things differently. And often in the West, we don't understand that. We just think we're right. Mm. And therefore the rest of the world, if they don't agree with us, they're just obstinate or bad people. Mm. It's absurd, of course. Um, so it's a very, very uh, enlightening process for me. Yeah. It's good that you touched upon that. Some, another question that someone did say was to ask you about the challenges that you face post, uh, acceptance of Islam. And you've just touched upon that. Um, can I ask how long ago that was in terms of when you embraced Islam and also, oh God, yeah. um, um, I like my Christianity thing. I didn't actually remember the date. Um, I would say it was a good 15 years ago. Oh, mashallah. Okay. And have you, have any of those friends, um, subsequently made amends? <laughs> no. Oh, no. 
I've, I've made, I've uh, made new friends mm. and I've not looked back really. So, uh, no, that that's, uh, no, sadly, um, I guess that happens. Yeah, it does. Okay. Um, the next question I had was, or the next set of questions more to do with da'wah or, um, encouraging people or spreading the message of Islam essentially. Um, and I think blogging theology is probably the best answer for that, um, which will come on in more detail um, further down the line. But in terms of, from your perspective, and I did watch a recent interview where you said that, look, you have to be more nuanced when someone asks you what's the best way to give da'wah or a book that you recommend, because it depends on the other person, essentially their level of yeah. intellect and various other factors. Yeah. So yeah. let's say um, a working class English person, <laughs> from your perspective and experience, um, what would you say is a recommended way of bringing them towards Islam? Uh, that's a good question. I, I mean, I, I'm not even sure what a, an English working class person is. I mean, I, I mean, I know what you're saying, yeah. but I mean, again, gender, age, uh, education level are, are relevant there too. They're not just all one bunch of people. Mm. They're, they're obviously that would be very insulting and, uh, inaccurate. Um, I, I, I think what, what, one of the ways that Muslims in general can give dawah is, uh, and, and many Muslims do this extremely well, is simply to be good neighbors, actually. And that might, might sound an odd thing to say, but you know, if you demonstrate kindness uh, and, uh, and goodwill and care it, in, in very practical ways, um, with your neighbors, your non-Muslim neighbors, then that really communicates a great deal about the nature of being a Muslim because Muslims are, are, uh, are, dem are practicing their faith when they do this, the Sunnah of the Prophet, you know, the way he treated even his enemies, you know, they, that, 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 uh, I forget the, the story in detail, but there's a woman who basically threw trash or dumped trash outside, uh, on, on the Prophet and so on. And the way he responded and, and, and ultimately won her over was extraordinary. And, and that might not have involved any preaching or any discussion of Tauhi, for example, I mean, may have done, I don't know, but the point of that story is the way he won her over was through, uh, you know, non-retaliatory, you know, not retaliating and attacking her, but seeing beyond her behavior to the wounded, hurt person beyond that. And, and, and in a way helping her to understand who he was by his responses to her. And I think there's a great wisdom there and how to relate to people. Um, but I mean, of course there are you know, using words as well, not just actions, um, uh, depending on who the neighbors are, you know, if they're Christian neighbors or they're atheist neighbors, you know, there are ways of talking to people which, uh, don't alienate them, encourage them on a journey. Um, so it's quite a skill and I think it, it requires a lot of goodwill and patience. Um, and also remembering there's something that I, I forget, but it's good to be reminded, I guess, is that it's God who turns hearts. Mm. It's not us. We don't make people Muslims. Um, it's like the Jordan Peterson thing. I mean, he, this guy has been given so much dower now, probably more than anyone else on the planet. I mean, some of the best dower carriers in the world, you know, uh, ha have um, approached him and spoken to him at length. I mean, you know, I don't think he needs any more dower, really. I mean, that's just my view, but I could be wrong. I mean, it's between him and God really now, but it's God who's going to turn his heart. He doesn't need more information. He doesn't need more arguments. If, if he ever did, he needs, he himself needs to make that journey to 
uh, to the towards the truth. Uh, and that's between him and God. There's nothing we can do, I think, anymore about that for him. I think. Mm. And he's not a working class guy. He's anything but. But, but um, that is the limitations of Tao as well. That it's not like we're promoting a, a secular ideology and trying to persuade people to become good, you know, good socialists or, or good Marxists or something. You know, embrace these political philosophies and change. It's not really like that. It, it's an invitation to. Uh, uh, to have to embrace the truth that we already kind of know actually deep down the fitra is is there hopefully and it echoes a part of our created nature so it's not an alien creed it's just reawakening our own instinctive intuitive beliefs about god about the world about who we are which are already within our nature um that's one way of putting it and uh yeah mm. yeah so i think um you're right in the sense or that manners or how you act it's a universal language i guess irrespective of someone's um intellectual ability or social class or everyone recognizes it i think sometimes the difficulty is for the non-muslim to see a connection between between that good manners good actions and islam um because it depends on the relationship but i found for example uh, when i was younger i spent some time as a summer job working in a warehouse where I was able to interact with like, let's say the average working class and the, the, the level of conversation and everything is a bit different to say when you're in an office environment. But I do feel as though you can have the most impact in long-term relationships. Say if you're working in an office for over a year, you've got a better opportunity being able to spread a good message of Islam or do that way in indirect subtle ways rather than um let's say street dawa which there's a place for and there's a need for as well but i just think most people i would say it's a very small minority that are interested in like the very minute or intellectual points um that say sapiens institute addresses uh, or other dawa organizations i think most people they're impacted by the kind of what you spoke about in terms of like matters of the heart, how you make them feel, um, and mm. things like that. And also this goes on to something that you're quite renowned for actually. And this was also a very liked comment on YouTube, the no design, <coughs> excuse me, the no design emoji that you post. And I think that kind of symbolizes it because it's, it's, it's appealing to people in a different kind of way. I, I wanted you to kind of yeah. expand on that idea. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm surprised these are so popular because I didn't start out with some grand plan that they would be um, popular, but they, they, they just have uh, become so. And um, it's amazing. I still got one or two people who are convinced that I'm an atheist because I put no design uh, with the emoji, the, the eyes up. Thinking, oh, he's denying, you know, no, actually, no, no, no. <laughs> this is irony. It's meant to be, it's almost sarcasm, you know, because the emoji is the clue, the, clue, the eyes looking up meaning, how, what I'm saying yeah. is the subtext is how can you deny that there is a designer looking at this design? And this is what the Quran often calls people to, and that's the point of it, actually. Um, look at the, the ayat, uh, the, it has a meaning of signs as well as obviously verses of the Quran, um, uh, just to reawakening this intuitive sense of uh, God's creative power in the universe. Um, 
And so the potential, you know, for these posts is limitless. You know, I could post pictures and I do, I have of the cosmos or a bird or a plant or, a, um, or anything, uh, the DNA, they all, they all, um, and there's a, there's a potential misunderstanding here as well. And this is a, a point I'm not going to push because it's extremely controversial, um, uh, amongst Muslims as well as others. I'm not taking a pro anti-evolution stance here. I'm not, I'm not, I am a creationist, but all believers are creationists in that we believe the universe is created by God, but that's different from saying, I reject Darwin uh, or reject the idea of Darwinian evolution. That's not what I'm doing because I believe that everything, whether it be a simple rock or a tree or an apple or DNA or the cosmos are all created by God, all show signs of intelligent design, but I'm not going to be posting pictures of rocks because, or, or just a tree. Well, I might do actually, but you know, cause it's not, it doesn't do, because this is social media, it doesn't work, but, I, but I'm not saying only DNA is created by God and other things are not because I uh, like, you know, rocks and boring things. I'm saying it's all created by God, but I don't post those kind of pictures because they just don't work on Twitter. Mm. I mean, they just not the job job. So, um. Yeah, it's a very simple thing. It is to reawakening. Uh, I mean, there's almost a limitless supply of pictures of the marvels of God's creation, uh, and it's extraordinary. Um, so I, I churn them out. I enjoy doing them, and and people get the point. Those who don't think I'm an atheist get the point. I should mm. say. So yeah, alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. I think the vast majority of people get the point, but I think your growth on YouTube and social media, you're obviously faced with the negative comments as well that I think kind of sometimes stay in the mind a bit that negativity bias kind of kicks into effect um I wanted to ask when you became Muslim how did you was there any period of confusion around the different sects and how did you navigate that if at all yes there was absolutely right because I, I developed quite a sophisticated intellectual map of Christianity Christian uh, theology the history of Christianity you know, the reformation and the counter reformation and patristics and, uh, Catholic theology and Protestant. I mean, you name it. I, I really drunk deeply from that well, uh, for a long time. And I studied at the university and, um, but then when I encountered Islam, I suddenly realized there was a parallel universe going on here and that I didn't know anything. And I was really aware and I was very explicitly aware in my mind. I, I, I had no map. I didn't know where to start. I kind of vaguely knew I was a Sunni, but I wasn't really sure why. <laughs> and, uh, I knew nothing of the great, um, thinkers, um, uh, of, of history, whether it be, you know, um, Al-Ghazali, Ibn Taymiyyah or whoever, or the, the eponymous founders of the four madhabs. I didn't know about that. I didn't do, I didn't know anything. Um, and, uh, that, that was a real acute sense of, you know, I needed to understand this. So I wanted to understand. And so that's been my journey that like, over the recent years is to, uh, become acquainted with this. And then equally interesting is to, um, uh, look at the interconnectedness between the West, the Islamic tradition and the Western tradition, because they are actually interconnected much, much more than I ever realized, uh, in terms of influences directly and indirectly, historically and intellectually and theologically. Um, the, uh, uh, and, and the way that a lot of Islamic ideas have actually, uh, came before Western ideas and fed into Western thought later. At the, at the Renaissance, for example, or even before that, you know, Thomas Aquinas, for example, who drew heavily on 
Muslim philosophers. And so to see that interconnectedness was really, really interesting. So I already knew mm -hmm. to some extent about the Western tradition. So I was, I was waiting to see these connections become real. And, and when I saw them, that was particularly fascinating, but it's a, it's a life, it's a many lifetimes journey. This isn't it, it go on forever. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I'm always exploring, um, you know, I discovered you know, a, a particular thinker who in many ways is deeply troubling and unfashionable to many people who I've come to have a huge respect for his mind. Um, and that is a, a, a much misunderstood figure called Ibn Taymiyyah, um, who, uh, I'm sure the viewers, uh, your viewers have heard of him, but I say it being misunderstood, but he, he, he's the most, you know, I, I didn't start off being a fanboy of Ibn Taymiyyah. I didn't start off as being a Salafi, a Muslim Muslim. I came into Islam through the Sufi door. That's just the way I came into Islam through Sufism and the works of Guy Eaton, for example. The English Sufi writer, um, so to discover, um, Ibn Taymiyyah, um, particularly his intellectual engagement with other schools of thought, his critique criticisms of Asharite theology, um, and his methodology and, and his criticisms of Kalam, of course, this was really, really interesting. And, um, he had a phenomenal mind. He's one of the great intellects in the history of the world, I think. Um, but he's much misunderstood. Um particularly in the West, uh, I'm not, I won't go into the reasons why, cause that would take us up into another world. But, um, so I, I you know, yes, Al-Ghazali, great. Uh, he was much more mainstream, um, but, um, less mainstream figures also interested me. And I came to have a, a real appreciation for their contributions to the Ummah in terms of reviving the Ummah and calling people back to um, perhaps a more authentic understanding of faith. Uh, this is all very controversial, but these things are unavoidable if one looks at these issues. Mm. Yeah, because I always, um, growing up as well, you experience this kind of um, debate and difference between the various different branches of Sunni Islam. And I think the internet has kind of changed that to an extent because now younger Muslims, especially, you're able to develop an understanding as to where this person or this group is coming from in terms of um, like the pathways of their mind that led them to that position. Whereas growing up, I'd say before YouTube became more commonplace, um, you were only exposed to say, if you went to your local masjid who subscribed to a particular um, mm. sect of Sunni Islam, let's say. Um, and the one striking example for me was growing up just a few years before youtube became mainstream um, there was peace tv by dr zakir knight and yeah. for me that was like because i was in a non-muslim school and i started listening to dr zakir knight when i was perhaps 14 or 15 and mm. obviously on a relatively simple level um for for that age it allowed me to carry my faith with confidence in I remember in religious education classes when the teacher would say something about Islam and then double check with me or just because I was the only Muslim there she'd like say isn't that right or something and I remember having this like confidence from how he was able to articulate certain things about science and Islam and all the rest of it but then mm. I would go to the local masjid and the khutbah which is the last 10 minutes, let's say, before the Jummah Salah starts, which is like the prime opportunity where you can impact the most amount of Muslims, would be about why mm. um, you need to tell your kids not to listen to Dr. Zakir Naik because 
you know <laughs> you know the akida is different and stuff like that and but there was no alternative being presented it's not like they were saying come to the masjid on thursday and we've got a young brother who speaks english and he can deal with it it was just like um and i think obviously once you get to university and you meet different muslims from different parts of the world you you get that understanding beyond um the level of like another example is when we used to go for uh, tarawih salah and say different muslims we pray eight and get up the elder muslims that we used to see they used to turn around and like shake their head at it and stuff <laughs> as if it was so clearly wrong right and it's like a minor fiki thing so yeah. yeah um so that was interesting but i wanted to ask you about i think your blog predates um blogging theology on youtube doesn't it um yeah still going yeah, yeah. that's been going for years and uh i i still feed it occasionally with with uh content but uh uh, has very few people who visit it uh, and uh, read the stuff, and I don't, I don't plug it because it's been superseded by other platforms I use. But yeah, it's it's been going for a long time. And where did the idea of a podcast come from? Because uh, just purely in podcasting terms or audience building terms, let's say, um, which isn't necessarily an aim um, a Muslim should necessarily have just for the sake of it, but it's remarkable in terms of the growth. And I, I was. I saw that you only started it, I think, March 2020, the YouTube channel. And the main reason, I would say, is consistent, high-quality, engaging content, which you're able to put out, mashallah. Um, but just um, tell us about the journey behind starting the podcast and where the idea came from. Yeah, again, it's a very un uninspiring um, <laughs> story. Um, a couple of years ago during lockdown, um, COVID lockdown, obviously, um, I, I found myself, uh, as we all did actually, you know, trapped in our homes. I mean, I had a job, which meant, um, I, I was a key worker. So I, I, I was able to go out to work. A lot of people could, didn't go out and shops were closed and, um, it was a very isolating experience for many, as it was for me. So at, at that time, I just happened to come into a bit of money and I bought a new MacBook pro, the one I'm still using now to replace my old clunky one, which barely functions. And, um. And it was a MacBook Pro that I really didn't need. I mean, it was like, it did things with huge memory that was way beyond my requirements and needs at that time. But hey, I thought I, I want to buy one. Hey, so I bought the best one I could on the market, you know, and I thought, well, what do I do now? So I'll, I'll make a, a YouTube video, but I'll just do it about what I want to talk about, which is, I forget what it was now, but it was something to do with the Bible probably. <laughs> and, um just as a way of communicating with the world through social media. Uh, I had no intention of starting blogging theology, uh, as it is now, no intention of inviting guests or anything like that. This was not, I had no grand vision, no plan at all, uh, beyond reaching out during COVID isolation. That was the original context. And then, so I think I started posting videos in November, the year before last, um, before that it was just nothing happened on the channel. It was just a name. Um, and within weeks, um, uh, it began to take off and, um, whoop, let me just, uh, on, um, let me just, uh, come out of that. Cause that was my WhatsApp and I do normally switch this off and my apologies. I'm just no, going to log out. No. Um, there we go. Um, so, um, 
uh, over, over a period of weeks, I started to get more and more, um, uh, viewers, subscribers. And I remember January year before last, I think, you know, I had a, at 1000 subscribers and wow, you know, this was amazing. And, um, and, and then I thought, well, why don't I invite someone on? Because I, I'd read some books obviously, and, um, some of them behind me and I, you know, I really would like to meet <laughs> these authors. And, um, so I remember I, I, I actually reached out to another Englishman who lives in Atlanta, um, uh, who is, um, a biblical scholar, Unitarian Christian actually. Um, and he's called Sir Anthony Buzzard. It's a wonderful name and called Buzzard, you know, and, uh, he's an Englishman living in, um, the States professor, I think retired now at some Bible college there. His father actually was like head of naval intelligence during the second world war. You know, he comes from a very distinguished aristocratic background. Anyway, I'm, I invited, I, I, I was kind of vaguely aware of who he was. I thought I invite this to see if, if I could have a conversation with him about Unitarian Christianity, who Jesus was. So he very graciously and, and perhaps unexpectedly said yes. And uh, so we had a, and he's actually a really, really nice guy. And we had a great time for about an hour, an hour and a half on what was then blogging theology. One of the, the first ever guests I had, he was the first ever. And, and, um, and that really broke the barrier for me because I thought, wow, um, I've invited someone, it really worked well and I had a really good time and the guests had a really good time, I think, and people <laughs> liked it. So I thought I'll invite someone else. And then I invited a much more senior academic, uh, because, uh, uh, buzzard bless him. He's not like a professor in a mainline university. So I invited someone who was a serious, uh, very prestigious biblical scholar. And amazingly here, this is, uh, Dominic Crossan, who's one of the great biblical scholars of the 20, uh, late 20th century. He actually agreed as well. And, and that was a great interview. So this really started something new, which I, I hadn't planned for. And that is to invite guests on, but with the objective, not of, um, arguing with them, debating with them, like I do at speaker's corner, um, but with actually listening to them and learning from them so that I'm there to receive knowledge and expertise from them and, and invite other viewers to participate in, in a sense, like I am, uh, in, in what's been offered to us through expertise. So I've always seen my, the channel is not about me, of course, it's about the contents, about the guests or about the books, the book reviews or whatever. It's not about me, but, um, because, and it's been led by what I enjoy and what I find interesting. So it's, I haven't followed any rules. There's like, there are lots of videos out there will tell you how to build a successful YouTube channel, whatever. And I've seen some of them and I've noticed that I don't follow any of their advice, unfortunately, and I've been very. Uh, I've broken the rules. I mean, for example, I, you're not supposed to have more videos longer than, I don't know, 10, 20 minutes because everyone's attention span is so limited. I mean, I, I did a video in June with professor Al Tubki, one of the America's leading professors at an Ivy league university for four hours. Mm. And you just don't do that. And yet it was a success. It was, uh, uh went viral. It's one of the most successful, um, you know, um, the things I've ever done. So over 111,000 views just in a couple of months for four hours. And you know, it's talking about LGBT and Islam, yeah. obviously extremely important subject. It's a brilliant video. Uh, professor Chubke, um, is an amazing academic of the highest caliber. And he's able really to explain the origins of this situation we're in 
uh, what it means for Muslims and what the, Isla the Islamic position actually is in terms of the Quran and the Sunnah. He does it brilliantly. Um, and so that's kind of what I do. I, I, I share with others what I would very much like to hear from these scholars. Mm. Uh, and, and that apparently has met a need for a lot of people. That That's the point. And I didn't realize there was this need. I didn't realize it was niche. I didn't realize it would be as it is. So alhamdulillah, it has been a success, but that's by primarily the grace of God, but, but also because it's a niche thing and, mm -hmm. and is meeting that people have i think yeah uh, it's funny that you say you didn't follow any of like the standard tips and tricks about um but i think it goes back down to high quality content consistently and it's meeting a need as well um mm. i think muslims they're very much you can tell by the comments and also uh how i feel just from my perspective when when i see some of this content i think i did watch part of the video that you're referring to and another thing i've noted that you do somewhat differently that i've not even seen on like the non-muslim podcast is essentially you you will have a guest on and obviously you're discussing ideas and whatnot whereas um say on this podcast i like to learn more about the guests like i previously had uh, Daniel Hay had you just about daily routine and his personality and things like that that otherwise might not get covered but then you also uh, invite guests to give presentations which I think yeah. is very key because they're yeah. able to articulate in in a way that they can best present their ideas and it's something I'm thinking of doing with like Islamic psychology because I'm interested in that and I took inspiration from that so that's another unique thing that I think you do really well. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I wonder if I've, I have been hopefully providing a kind of like a safe space for academics to uh, come on and, and discuss, you know, come out of the ivory tower perhaps and discuss uh, their work, uh, mm. their, their books and so on uh, with a wider audience mm. because uh, uh, the, the guests are usually people who have something to say that is of a great interest to the wider world. Um, for example, my last video I did was with uh, an academic from university. Uh, who did his PhD at the University of Toronto, Dr. Michael Milliman, talking about the political philosophy yeah. of Russian philosopher uh, Alexander Dugin. And I got some serious criticism from a, a quite a, a very distinguished Muslim academic. Uh, he, he, he publicly criticized what I did. And I haven't publicly responded, uh, and I'm, I have no plans to, except now I'm going to say that, that the reason, the reason I because he thought this is really, really bad timing to do this video because of what's going on in Ukraine, of course, because uh, Dugan is a supporter of the war, uh, Putin's action in, in Ukraine, and he thought it was appalling, basically, that I should have someone who supports Putin on my channel, you know, at such a, at such a difficult time. And but my answer to that, really, I, I haven't given a public answer because, but I, I will now, but is um, that it's always good to understand what other people are thinking, especially when you don't agree with them. Um, and that, yeah, there may be this terrible conflict going on. I don't have an opinion, by the way, I'm not here to endorse or oppose anyone. That's kind of not my pay grade. I mean, who am I to have, yeah, it's not the point. Um, but to understand the political and philosophical ideas that may or may not have informed Putin's mind, his own worldview, I think is a, is really important actually, because uh, we need to understand the guy and we need to understand Russian foreign policy, its aims and objectives. How do the Russian elite see the West? Um, 
And to actually not want to understand that, I think, is, is uh, for me, incomprehensible. Why would we not want to understand it? doesn't mean in understanding something or having a guest on like Dr. Milliman, uh, who is clearly sympathetic with Dugan, it doesn't mean I'm saying to the world, uh, agree with Dugan. I'm not saying I agree with Dugan mm. on everything. I think on some things, he has some very interesting insights, to be honest, but it's so we can listen and understand what other people think and people who we really don't approve of perhaps like Putin, President Putin of Russia. And that's okay. We're adults. We can hopefully handle this and, and not fit, see it as a threat or something that should be shut down because there's a conflict going on. Um, and so that's my kind of my response. I, I think, you know, having someone talking about Putin, uh, Dugan rather from a sympathetic point of view does not mean that we're become Putin apologists. It means we're trying to understand responsibly how they think or how they probably think about world events, which is the context in which the current war in Ukraine is, uh, Ukraine is happening. And I don't see why that's a bad thing. Mm. And if I do it impartially or objectively, which I hope I did, then what's to object to? And you know, I, I, it's, it's not a platform that's advocating Dugan or Putin. That's not what happened. That's not mm. what happened at all in the video. And no one's alleging I've done that. I think apart from this one guy, perhaps. So, um, th that was quite some very strong criticism from a senior British Muslim academic, but I, I, I've checked out with other people who, who are kind of advise me, you know, to make sure I don't do anything too stupid, um, that they thought what I did was fine, that there was nothing there to be ashamed of or to regret in any way criticized. So I stand my ground the, the video is, is fine. I think Dr. Milliman did an extremely good presentation of Dugan's philosophy. Um, it's a very, very popular video. It's, it's, it's gone, it's gone a little bit viral, you know, it's had a huge number of hits. Um, and I've only heard positive things, uh, from people apart from this one academic who, uh, basically, uh, did a fairly ad hominem thing about me saying, I really, you shouldn't have done that. Very bad. Mm. There you go. But, uh, there's another thing, a lesson I have learned, by the way, um, the pain for the hard way. Um, is that I'm not going to please everyone all the time. Uh, there was an early stage when I got a lot of criticism over, I'm not going to go into the subject, but it was the most serious threat that I had faced in terms of the content production on, on BT. And I, I really had to think hard about what the channel is about, why I do it. Um, and I came through that and I made a statement saying, this is what the channel is about. So I'm not, I, there's some people who are not going to like what I do. That's fine by me. They don't have to watch it anyway. Uh, so, um, you know, for me now, it doesn't phase me hardly at all now. In fact, this criticism I got recently didn't phase me. It was just, why is he saying that? Why is he objecting to me having uh, a discussion on political philosophy? So it was kind of cu uh, curiosity and slight disbelief why anyone would object to it mm. rather than, oh my God, criticized by uh, this individual and I, who I do respect, by the way. Mm. And, uh, there's a lot of good things for the British Muslim community. He's produced an excellent report recently. Um, but, and he's been a guest on the channel. This is the other thing. Mm. And, uh, uh, shall I, he will be a guest again, but, um, it doesn't phase me like it would have criticism like that no longer phases me. Mm. Yes. Um, I was actually going to ask you about dealing with criticism and especially with the rapid mm. growth that, um, blogging theology has had. So you've touched on it nicely. I also think. It's good from the perspective that you you noted this con this criticism um, because it was mm. from 
an academic, someone that you respect. So you're not even yeah. in the territory that a lot of YouTubers fall into of just giving random criticism, attention of like a random commenter, let's say, um, mm. because people, like you said, will ob object to all sorts of things. Um, I've not really, my project is obviously very small at the minute. Um, but even you get the odd random comment that just sticks in your mind yeah. compared to all of the good stuff. Um, even though like yeah. say optimize Muslim, it's about the idea of trying to improve Muslims. And I've had one person quote it in quotation marks saying that I'm trying to say I'm optimized Muslim. And he's like, optimize Muslim. Do you think? And I was like, but you can't really focus on that. And, and I don't either. Um, because it's just like out of a hundred people, you can say, at least 1% is going to be clinically insane anyway. Um, so it's like, <laughs> so you, it's, you think it's such a low percentage. 1%, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's higher than that. So I feel like you have to filter it from that lens, but I think you're a very much, mashallah, much loved figure within the Muslim community. And it's great to see how you've managed to navigate it because it's easy to get into silos. Um, say if I was a graduate, I'm not from, um, some kind of Darul Uloom or um, Jami Al Karam or something. It's very easy because of the community that would be around me, my class fellows and ustads and teachers. I wouldn't be, it'd be harder for me to interview people who aren't within that specific line because yeah. you have to kind of deal with that alienation aspect, which I think you've managed to do yeah. um, really well. Really, it was a really good point because I do have uh, very strong views on lots of things, um, and um, but I, I often invite guests on who certainly don't share my views, and I'm aware of I'm aware of that, and because it's, the channel's not about me, as I keep on saying, it's about their expertise. So I have one guy on, I won't mention who it is because I don't want to reopen this issue, who's incredibly controversial, and. Um, but he has a specific area of expertise. He's got a PhD from Harvard on this subject, and he's very good at talking about it. And I invited him on to talk about it, and he did it brilliantly for a couple of hours, like three hours or something. But the rest of his theology, uh, uh, without giving too much away, is something I don't agree with at all. And he knows this, but but and he's an, he's a serious academic. Um, and I got a lot of stick from a lot of people about that. That was the thing that really produced the crisis about a year ago. Um, but I, I, on reflection, I decided that we, I did the right thing because he is a responsible academic in the field that he is an expert on. And that's what he spoke about. And that's, he provided good content that could benefit everyone. And that was why I invited him on. But in terms of his own kind of theology or whatever, you know, absolutely, <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm going any further. We don't share the same worldview. Mm -hmm. um, so the question is, you know, is it a Muslim channel that should promote orthodox traditional sunni islamic views no and there was a time when i was inching towards that that being the case and i realized that if i did that then suddenly everything would narrow down most people wouldn't come on and it would be just it it, it wouldn't it would be a betrayal of the dna that i that the channel was supposed to be about so it's a difficult one mm. um and, and i i had i had some a friend of mine who is an academic at Oxford University, I won't say his name, <laughs> bless him, um, uh, who, who made two criticisms. He said, uh, he said uh, 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 this is actually this morning, so this is new, really, but he said to me, um, you know, he likes what I do and he's a good, he's a good friend, uh, but, and he's a very distinguished academic at Oxford. And he said, look, I, I, I want to show you some criticisms of your channel, Paul. 
Oh my goodness, me, what's he going to say? Um, and he said two things, which I thought were really good. Uh, this is, this is feedback he's had from friends and colleagues, uh, at Oxford. One is the extremely small number of women scholars I've had on, and this is true. Uh, I've only had about two female academics or speakers at all on the channel. This is a valid criticism. By the way, I'm not into having proportionally representative gender equality. Yeah. Absolutely not my thing at all. But there, there have been far too fewer, um, you know, uh, female scholars. I, I have tried, and it's not always easy to successfully bring them on, but I, this is a valid criticism. Secondly, um, uh, and my, my friend at Oxford is not a Shia, but he said, it's been said to him, why have you not had any Shia scholars on to talk about the Shia understanding of this, that, and the other? That's a good point. I have actually did invite one on and he just never replied, but nevertheless, there is a need for me, I think, to, to have an expert, at least one expert on talking about the Shia understanding of the Imanate, for example, you know, the whole thing. Um, so th th those two criticisms I think are valid. And I will, uh, I am, uh, as a result of that, I took immediate steps to try and rectify that by contacting various people I know. Um, so yeah, so that's, um, some criticism. I mean, the, 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 the visual audio visual quality of my early videos is appalling. That's because, you know, if you look at the older videos, I mean, they're just awful mm. <laughs> in terms of the production values, but my excuse is that's because I simply had no idea what I was doing. I didn't actually know how to produce good videos and it's taken me, the learning curve has been quite steep, um, in learning actually how to use good cameras and have good audio, et cetera, et cetera. And I didn't know about, I didn't know about this. Mm. I simply was, so that that's been a big change as well. Yeah. Now I've noted, especially on your most recent ones, you know, the, um, segments that you do when you're quoting from a book, um, yourself, the camera quality on those, I don't know what it is, but it's absolutely amazing oh um, I, I can tell you it's easy it's this it's uh <laughs> it's my iphone uh, uh it's the latest iphone so mm. this has got a um let me just uh get it out so what's it called cinematic there we go yeah uh the cinematic screen on on this is uh outstanding uh, and i just use that to mm. film my thoughts on um so yeah it's not even my macbook pro it's the uh the app on my iphone Yes. And even in that recent podcast that you mentioned, um, Alexander Dugin, um, yeah, I watched that actually, I listened to it and I think towards the end, you, you provided a good kind of summary of where, not where you stand, but the idea behind why you, um, invited this guest. So from, uh, obviously there are going to be some people that have, um, criticisms and whatnot, but I think you've addressed that point well and good. Um, the other thing I was wanted your take on is because I, I know of certain podcasts, I can think of one relatively big Muslim podcast. Um, it's not necessarily on like the intellectual side like yours. Um, it's more so about guests and similar to this one, they will invite, um, non-Muslims on like notable non-Muslims who have had some kind of interaction with the Muslim community, but they won't invite Muslims that they feel aren't within that their right. kind of way of thinking and i, I just yeah. found that strange. i can see the justification yeah. from their um way of thinking because they'll say yeah. this person yeah. is more likely yeah. to I, yeah exactly i i had that issue people saying you know it doesn't matter what numbers you know but, but don't invite deviants on you know uh you know who believe x or believe y and i'm thinking okay yeah maybe you're right and i'm thinking 
actually, no, if I go down that path, it will destroy the channel because I, I, I'm not fighting people on who I disagree with to give them a platform to preach at us. I'm inviting people on who have a specific expertise in a specific area to share that with us, to share knowledge with us. Now, my attitude is very much take what is good from what they say and ignore the rest. Mm. So if I invite an Ishmaeli academic on, which I have, I, I'm, I'm not giving a platform to Ishmaeli apologists so that they can do whatever to Sunni Muslims. It's not my, my agenda is to, they have specific expertise, which is not really to do with their confessional position. Um, in, in this particular case, to do with the Injil uh, in the, the Quran and the New Testament, which is really, really beneficial. And that's why they were invited on. But I was criticized for giving a platform to someone like that. But I, I think on reflection, having taken soundings and responsible friends and colleagues, uh, what I did was, was perfectly le legitimate. Um, but it's not, there's not a perfect world. You know what I mean? It, it is, you know, I, I'm not saying I've got it all correct and all right, but I've reached the decisions I have based on serious consideration and reflection. If people don't agree with it, that's absolutely fine. And they don't have to watch the channel, um, hey. but it's what I do. Yeah. And if by the grace of God, it works, Alhamdulillah, then I'm happy with it. Alhamdulillah. So uh, turning to more selfish questions, I'd say, um, towards the latter end of the podcast, I wanted to ask, um, who manages the podcast as in behind the scenes, because, um, inviting guests and dealing with timing and scheduling is actually sometimes quite difficult. Um, I, I was wondering mm. if you do that or do you have an assistant or who manages the whole kind of project? Um, that's a good question. Um, well, I have, um, uh, someone in India, uh, who, uh, is kind of my a producer. Um, I won't mention his name cause I haven't asked his permission, but, uh, he, he, uh, he creates the thumbnails and, uh, he downloads the videos from StreamYard or zoom and, uh, tops and tails. I mean, you know, as the blogging theology logo beginning, he adds any photographs or any whatever during it and edits, edits them if they need editing. Um, and so he, he does all that, um, which is really great. Um, th there is someone else also who has assisted in contacting people and, um, putting the subtitles, uh, into Arabic and or 24 other languages, actually, that's an ongoing work as well. Um, but I'd say most of the legwork is just mine. Um, actually, um, really, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I can't, say, um, yeah, in terms of inviting guests, like 90% of the time, the last two years or year and a half, it's been me. Mm. I just fire off the bells and saying, hi, you know, how are you? <laughs> Do you want to come on? Um, so yeah that's really impressive mashallah especially with the level uh, of doing maybe two or three a week um it's it's, ve it's very yeah, impressive that's too many. I, well it, it's too many and i'm really pushing back on I'm, i know it sounds again this is not what you're supposed to do who breaks all the rules but i'm actually trying to produce less content um um i've got this i, I this this kind of rule thing uh uh, one plus one plus one, which is not the argument about the Trinity, by the way, this is anything else. <laughs> so, so, uh, videos per week. So what, what one, hopefully major interview a week, the big biggie, uh, so that would be the, like, like the Dr. Milliman thing on, um, Dugan, uh, secondly, uh, a much shorter one, 10, 20 minutes that where I do my own thing in terms of book reviews or whatever. Uh, and thirdly, a short, you know, these under 60 second videos. So one plus one plus one in a week. So 
rather than doing two or three major interviews, there's several reasons. One, because it's actually a hell of a lot of work for me because a lot of these guests for the big interviews, you know, I, I mean, the Dr. Al Tupki came on to talk about something about Ibn Taymiyyah's work. He actually said, I had to read his book on this, which is actually a PhD doctoral dissertation. And I did read it. I remember sitting in Bahrain in a hotel when I was on holiday reading this thing. Now it's fantastic reading it, but to actually read a PhD thesis, just to have an interview with someone is hard work, obviously. And this is often the case. I had Dr. Abdullah Ali in talking about, um, but you know, is, is Islamic law against women? Uh, and uh, he'd written a book. So I had to read that book before mm. the interview. And, um, it's a great, I mean, I love, it's a huge privilege to actually meet the authors of these books, but it's actually quite intensive. Mm. I don't always read books by the way, when I have these guests, but often I do, or at least articles, you know, academic articles, um, which is cool. Um, but. The, the other problem is, is that if I produce too much content, it's indigestible for the, the viewers. You know, I, I mean, you just can't assimilate it all. It's just mm. too much. Mm. So I, I'm just trying to pull back a bit, um, produce less content and, um, to give everyone a breather, give myself an, an easier life perhaps. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I haven't got the balance right yet. That's mm. for sure. Yeah. It's uh, I forgot to mention that. So adding to that impressive nature is the fact that your interviews are a lot more about ideas where say if I just want to have a guest on and I'm intrigued by their personality you can just ask general questions I guess you have to be somewhat familiar with their work um in the next couple of weeks I've got one where the guest has written a book on masculinity for Muslims so that's one where I'm going to have to do kind of the research and stuff behind it um so that's an interesting point that you mentioned um I wanted to ask um, perhaps you, you want to mention who, or perhaps not, um, some guests that you've not yet interviewed, but you'd really like to. Oh, I was, <laughs> uh, yes, I think, uh, professor Walel Halak, uh, who many people might not have heard, he's a professor at Columbia university. He's written books like, uh, introduction to Islamic law. He's written a book on, um, uh, what has he written? Um, that's it restating. Orientalism, a critic of modern uh, knowledge. I'm talking about one of the books. He is a phenomenal intellect, uh, and um, he's extremely relevant. Uh, he, he's one guy. I haven't invited him yet because I feel I ought to read at least three of his books before I do, and I've only read one of them. Uh, but his books are really high level, fascinating. He's a palette. He's a guy who is um, American citizen, but he was born in uh, Nazareth. I think some other guy was born there. I forget. Anyway, yeah. he's a pa Palestinian. Christian, uh, from Nazareth in Palestine, um, who has said some incredible things about Sharia, Islamic law and so on. Uh, not, not least that he'd much rather live under a Sharia based system than he would in America mm. because for a whole bunch of really interesting reasons, there's a YouTube video about that, but he's also incredibly distinguished academic. Uh, he's produced some amazing criticisms of Orientalist epistemology, uh, uh, and, uh, and his understandings of, um, uh, the, the state, Islamic state, uh, he's written a book called the impossible state as well, which, uh, is excellent. Um, so he, he I really love to have him on, but I, I don't feel that I'm ready yet for him because he is such a, um, you know, I really need to do more homework, mm. possibly have him. On. Mm. Um, Jordan Peterson, I'm going off. I, I thought I'd like to, but I'm going off the idea uh, to be honest. Um, <laughs> I, I, but I think, I think it, if I did, it wouldn't be to talk to him about it wouldn't be to do dower to him because he's been dower to death. Um, it, it would be, um, 
to hear him talk about uh, his expertise, which is clinical psychology. So mm. to talk about gender, to talk about all those issues that mm. he's so brilliant at talking about feminism, uh, wokeism and all that. I'd love to, to, to discuss that with him. But I, I think the Dower thing, it, 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 he's, he's been given more Dower than most people on earth, I think. And um, perhaps we can, I would like to focus on what he's actually an expert on, which is psychology. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you, someone asked for me to ask you about Jordan, Dr. Jordan Peterson. I think you'd have to make sure you've got your terms defined beforehand. So what do you mean by do you accept God? Yes, so this is, yeah, I, I absolutely not going to go down that path. I, I, again, my channel is not about doing doubt to people anyway, at least not directly. Mm. Hit, hit. No, but I mean, it's, not, um, <laughs> it, it, it's about, you know, hearing our expertise. So he's an expert in certain fields and he really is worth hearing in certain areas. And I would love to have him as a guest for that purpose, but not to get his views on Islam. And he's not an expert mm. on these things, actually. Um, you know, I, I get a Christian theologian on or a biblical scholar, and I do. Uh, I'm incredibly fortunate to have them on. I talk to them rather than him about Christianity. Mm. I, I, I think the previous academic that you mentioned that you'd like to interview, um, am I correct in thinking he was discussed in your interviews with Imam Tom Fakin? Um, when you were reviewing his books, I think Imam Tom went through his books or. Yeah. Uh, Professor Talal Assad. Um, ah, right. But this is the book that we for formations of the secular, the, probably the most dullest titles of a book I've ever come across, but it's actually a brilliant, brilliant book. And, uh, uh, yeah, there are lots of people like that. I I'd love to have on, um, yeah, absolutely. The people I like to have on again, I, I, actually, this is probably more people like Professor Ali Atai, who's mm. hugely popular, mm. uh, and he's just a stunning intellect mm. and communicator. I mean, he is, I mean, I'm in touch with him on WhatsApp, but yeah. he is coming on uh, in a couple of months, mm. uh, God willing. Mm -hmm. um, people like him, uh, Ham, uh, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, uh, uh, inshallah, is coming at the end of next month. Um, uh, and, if, and other people as well have said they will come on mm. in due course. Yeah. So I think, um, yeah, I've, I've also, I think I'll also try and reach out to Dr. Ali, uh, inshallah, because, um, yeah. I've been quite inspired by some of the things that he said. I really liked your interview with, um, Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad and yes, what about, uh, just throwing it out there? Blogging theology and King Charles. Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> it, 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 in your dreams, in our dreams. I, I'm gonna have. I thought that was a brilliant um, little episode that you, you that you did on um, King Charles's mm -hmm. view towards Islam and whatnot. So, I agonized. Uh, the friends and I agonized over that for days because uh, the Queen had just died, and. Um, it was obvious that Charles was going to be the next king. As soon as she passed away, he became king. So I thought, wow, I'll, I'll do a video on Charles and Islam. And friends of mine say, you can't do it. We're, we're at the nation's mourning. You know, you can't do a video. It'd be really bad timing. And and so I wanted to do this video, but when can I do this video? So I don't upset people or I don't want to kind of break diplomatic protocol by putting... And, and then, of course, Charles himself did a walkabout outside Buckingham Palace. This was like 48 hours within his mother's... Uh, death. And I thought, well, that's it. If he can go around meeting the public and shaking their hands, which he did, I can do a video. I mean, you know, I, I, he, he's not in seclusion. It's not like, oh, I've got to respect his grief and not say anything for six, for six days or a week, wherever it was. He's out and about. So that, and that was the green light. I thought, fine, we were good to go. So I just 
did this video for like 12 minutes and, um, it's had over half a million hits, mm. um, um, since then. Um, and it's, it's, it's the most popular video I've ever done in terms of viewers, of course. And, um, um, and it was great. It, it, it was perfect. It turns out in retrospect, it was perfectly timed. Mm. It, yeah. it, it really was. Mm. Um, that was, um, just good fortune mm. really, but no, he, he's not just King John. He's the head of state and they don't appear on YouTube videos. It just doesn't happen diplomatically. Mm. Politically impossible. Mm. Okay. And bringing everything, you've been very gracious with your time. Um, so one, just wondering how do you need to go exactly in five minutes or do we have something more to play with? No, it's okay. I'm, no, no rush. Okay. Uh, I'm a cup of tea. So I'm <laughs> okay. So, um, on the topic of reading, because I know even in your YouTube, uh, this bio description, you describe yourself as a bibliophile, um, how incurable. <laughs> incurable yeah I, I a self-confessed incurable bibliophile is the technical definition of my condition yeah. <laughs> in other words i can't stop reading. so it's not reading and reading i read i read them yeah. um, i heard something recently that kind of because in the kind of self-development space there's a lot of this stuff about optimization of reading and listen to something on mm. 2x speed and 3x speed and you can mm. speed read and all the rest of it um but there was um an author who said that oh so I, I really like any of this but anyway yeah carry on so there was not there was an author who said that even if you're the most prolific of readers there's only let's say a few thousand books that you're going to read in your lifetime um the amount of books probably won't feel like a small library um so you have to be somewhat selective in how you choose yeah. which books to read. And I was considering yeah. how do you, at this stage, um, kind of, um, are you still guided by your interests or recommendations? How do you choose which books to read? And do you read oh, them? Do you read them in a way where I know some people have this thing where they, if they open a book, they have to finish it page by page. And other people have this method of just skimming whatever gem sticks and like not being, being using the book in that way, rather than being like, I have to read each page by page and finish the book. So what's your approach? I'm probably not a good person to ask because I don't really have any, I, I know Sheikh Hamza Yusuf has is this course or whatever yeah uh, how to read i book. saw that yeah. very structured uh you know reflected educated way this is how you know and i don't have any of that unfortunately so i'm probably not a good person to ask i might lead people astray because <laughs> i don't have that I'm, I'm driven by my own my own nafs really it's like what i want to read you know this is really is what it is it just happens to be that my reading is quite eclectic um uh, I mean, I could give, I've got some examples here. I, I put them here before we started about what I'm currently reading and just explain to you the different kinds of reading that I do. Um, cause I'm reading this book at the moment. Um, uh, it's a French book, uh, originally it's called, um, well, it's by, by my, Marcel Proust. And one of the English translation is in remembrance of, of things past or time lost, depending on how translated. And, um, this is a great, great novel written uh, in the early 20th century, uh, probably the greatest novel of the 20th century. And this is the first installment, Swan's Way, and you see it's quite thick. But the, the point of me reading this is that a lot of people say, and they're absolutely right, if you read this book in translation or in the original French, is that you read it slowly because the uh, Marcel Proust uh, has a whole worldview where you just really need to immerse yourself in it and take your time uh, and just 
go through it. And um, it's very, well, some of it is quite stream of consciousness stuff. Um, but once you kind of get involved in his mind and his way of thinking, it's the most extraordinary book. It's, it's probably the greatest novel of the 20th century. Um, you don't put this on 2X. You don't speed through it because you will not, you will destroy the delicate French aroma. You know, this is, it's meant to be savored and not, you know, bulldozed through. So that's one example. Um, another book I'm reading, a uh, completely different subject, um, Sultan Abdul Hamid II, the last great Ottoman um, Sultan. Uh, this is a translation, uh, and this is the history of obviously this guy, um, because I'm quite interested in the Ottoman uh, Empire. Um, another book I'm reading by one of my former guests, um, Dale Allison, is professor at uh, of uh, Princeton University, one of the most distinguished universities in the states. He's an extremely brilliant man, um, and this has just been published: Encountering Mystery: Religious Experience in a Secular Age. And he's talking about all sorts of things like near-death experiences or people who think they've seen ghosts or people who've had amazing experiences of or God or, um, or experiences of evil. He talks about those who've experienced an evil presence in their room or uh, and, and so on and so on. And it's the most extraordinary book because um, it's talking about religious experience in, in the West at a time when official religion is uh, in many countries, you know, virtually extinct. Mm. And yet beneath the surface, uh, many, many people, millions of people, uh, according to reports and studies, have very vivid and life-changing religious experiences, which are not connected to organized religion. And this book, which literally been published a few weeks ago, is a very readable um, and daring book in a way, because he's exploring this kind of underworld of experiences. Um, it's very... Uh, he doesn't really talk about Muslim experiences or Christian experiences, mm. but I think it, it's fascinating. Uh, 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 anyway, so I'm reading that one. That's great fun. Um, but I, I'm reading other books. I tend to read about five or six books at the same time. And depending mm. on the kind of book it is. So the, the, this one reads slowly. This one I can read fairly fast. And this one, because of the author, and he's just so amazing. I just I just enjoy reading. He's so, he's so good with words and expressions and the way he has insights into psychology, human experience are very uh, intelligent and non-judgmental. And so I, I kind of savor that book. It's not something I feel I have to plow through mm. to get to the end. Um, but, but my academic works, I, I will be much more um, systematic and read them through, even if I don't like them or find them interesting uh, or juicy, I will, because I have an objective, which is to understand the whole contents. I will push myself. It's like when you're jogging or you're running, you're, oh, I'm too tired. And you just put, no, you keep on running, you keep on pushing it because you know, you've got a goal. And that's how I do. That's how I do it with some of the more academic books, which are quite demanding actually, mm. because I'm not, I'm not, if I, if I do it just on the basis of, of well, am I enjoying this book? Mm. I'm not going to finish because I'm going to get bored after an hour or whatever. Mm. So. I have different strategies depending on the the genre of book I'm reading. Yeah, no, that's that's a great. That's exactly what I was wanting to hear in terms of like your insights and how you your process essentially. What about the issue of recall in terms of like m remembering some of the stuff that you read? As in, does that pain you sometimes mm. to think that the things that you read, there's certain things that will just intuitively stick out to you and perhaps like register in your brain for whatever reason um depending on 
various different factors, I guess. But other than that, do you have a system um, for remembering or note taking and things like that? Oh, yeah. Oh, note taking. Yeah, I, I, I do use um, Barrows and uh, I've got you know I've got, uh, yellow markers or whatever. Uh, absolutely, uh, that's quite important. Um, I think remembering. I, I, I actually find myself. A great way to remember things I've discovered, and this is a commonplace, this has often been observed in people, is if you explain, you know, if I'm reading a, a, a book, say, on the historical understanding of the Gospels in the New Testament, uh, a great way to remember it is to explain what I've just read to someone else. Mm. So just talk to them about, about this book, you know, what is reduction criticism, what, what is Christology, what is uh, textual, and actually explain these concepts to another person verbally. Um, sometimes in discussion, sometimes even in debate. And then that really helps to clarify and embed what I've read. In a way, uh, uh, the alternative is just within my own mind, kind of almost like a, a solipsistic experience, just within my own experience. And then it tends to stick far less. So actually talking about it with someone else helps to really um, make it a part of the intellectual furniture. And so I, I, I've done that with some books so many times now that I kind of walk around with this apparatus and I know that I just, you know, it's quite dangerous in a way because particularly at Speaker's Corner in debate, you know, I know I can just deploy this, you know, and it's quite, it can be if it's weaponized, which is not good. If it was weaponized, it could be quite dangerous. It could be quite, you know, you can really cut down argument, but it can be quite lethal. By lethal, I mean, the arguments are so powerful and they're so intellectually acute that you don't, if, you, if you're debating someone, you don't want to devastate them. You want to bring them on board. So you've got to be careful how you deploy this information because it can be very um, subversive of their world. You know, mm -hmm. if they have certain ideas, if they're fundamentalists, for example. So one has to be careful to deploy this knowledge in a sensitive way rather than just using it as a weapon to beat them because it's powerful stuff. Um, so, you know, there's, with knowledge comes responsibility, you know, you, you, one can't just deploy it. One has to be careful how, how one does it. And I've made lots of mistakes in this area when I have used uh, knowledge, perhaps inappropriately, uh, thinking at Speaker's Corner, of course. Yeah. Uh, and that's not. Yeah, because it's now, especially with more and more technology and everything's becoming a bit more. Yeah. Um, quite weird actually I was looking at something recently where someone was saying that they've um, you're able to download this person's brain it sounds all crazy but what he actually meant was he had got someone to transcribe every single post and every single um, clip of what this person had said it was to do with internet marketing and whatnot and business and he would put it in a database that was searchable and linkable as well so essentially if you wanted to learn something particular about the psychology of sales or something it'd come up with all the instances this person said it and it's if you think about how you could potentially use that same idea with certain islamic figures um it, it's quite interesting to think where that could go potentially in, in terms of like using that level of technology to kind of gather someone's ideas in one place and um the final um question final set of questions um five or so more minutes if that's okay um yeah, that's cool i wanted to ask you so what's the day in the life of brother paul williams well it depends on what day of the week it is <laughs> was it saturday today or i i slept in and had a nice breakfast and then i'm chatting to you so that's <laughs> 
that's my that's my day so far um nothing terribly eventful to talk about um but on other, other days of the week you know i try and you know i have a certain routine and um emailing uh, ch checking uh comments because i have to check them in case for a bunch of reasons mm. emailing people uh research study conversation uh, is a whole bunch of stuff mm. that i I, uh, I have to do um and it's amazing how the time flies by you know um <clears throat> but even this morning I, I i've already invited a couple of academics to come on just on whatsapp you know it's just um so it, it's quite unstructured in that way, but I, I do end up kind of having a, an overall plan. Mm. Um, but um, it's nothing very interesting, believe me. Okay. So, um, can I can I ask what was your, because another person asked this and I wasn't sure whether to ask you or not, but can I ask what your profession was or like what your working life consisted of um, or if it does? Um, yeah, maybe not. Uh, no, I had a, um, a, a key job before I did this. Um, I'm not going to go into okay. uh, here, but uh, no, I'm not going to, but it was, it was an unusual job. Okay. Sure. Put it this way. And it was one I was not really suited to either, but so I was glad to, to leave it about a year and a half ago, okay. um, but I did that for seven years and, um, I learned some interesting lessons, um, which I've deployed on blogging theology. Uh, it was a private company and, um, about how to understand corporately uh how the one's behavior in a corporate context so i had to be very aware of the reputation of the company i worked for you know protecting it i mean regardless of whether or not i like the company i i you know i was supposed to you know and behave in certain ways uh, and uh, be uh, be aware of how the reputation of the company affects its performance uh blah 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 and and, and that awareness ha has had a substantial influence on what i do now so um you know, I, I, I really avoid ad hominems. I avoid attacking people publicly. Um, I mean, it's wrong anyway, but I, I don't get into verbal warfares with people. I don't do videos that denounce other people like some people do. All this is completely off. You know, I can't do that because it would do, it would um, damage the brand, so to speak. Um, so I, I've, I've learned some lessons from my previous experience <clears throat> and, and also how to how to relate to a whole range of people in a professional way, hopefully, um, in terms of etiquette, the language you use, both in emails, correspondences, and verbally. Um, so it's like a dab, but it's a dab that ha ha has been influenced by the best practice in the business world mm. that I experienced. Uh, and I had to learn those lessons the hard way because I made mistakes before, you know, sometimes people would think my bluntness was rudeness mm. and it probably was. I had to learn how to phrase things in a way which is not going to trigger, you know, cause offense. Mm. And that's been a difficult process to learn, given my own faults. Um, so I have learned things from my previous work, but in terms of what it actually was, I'm not going to go there. But I, I wasn't suited to it either, mm. but I did it because I the job. Okay, sure. Then. How do you view, I know you asked this to, um, Brother Roshan, I think his name is the journalist, and he had a very somewhat uh, pessimistic view. Um, how would you describe the future of Islam in the UK? Um, and I'll preface that by just adding this, because myself, when I think of staying in this country, I think now we live in this, people say the globalized village and whatnot, global village. I think yes. it's very attractive for me to plan and prepare by the will of Allah to move out, as in, I think there's going to be a lot of 
Muslims who are passionate Muslims that they're going to think the best deal on offer to me is just to move to a country where it's easier. Uh, what's, what's your thinking on that topic of the future of Islam in the UK and where you see things headed? Well, it's funny you should say that because I've invited um, uh, 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 an academic, uh, Professor Linda Woodhead. She's a uh, professor at college here in London, a very prestigious sociologist of religion, um, to talk about this subject. Well, an aspect of this subject. Um, she's done a lot of research on this, high-level research. She gave a lecture uh, several weeks ago. That's how I even knew about her talking about this subject, which I watched on YouTube. And she says some very interesting things. I think she probably comes from a kind of, I mean, I don't know, but I suspect she comes from kind of an Anglican Christian background. I could be wrong, but that, that's my impression. Uh, she's certainly not a Muslim. Uh, she's Professor Linda Woodhead. Um, and what she says is very interesting. And I think uh, this is part of the answer to, uh, she'll come on, uh, God willing, beginning of December after this particular academic term has concluded. She's very busy doing that, she says, which is obviously very understandable. Um, she says that, that she's looking at the, the recent census uh, of the population, which is uh, due to be published soon. She's done a lot of her own research in Britain about religious groups, religious adherents, attendance at churches and mosques and synagogues and whatnot. Unbelief, you know, uh, uh, people who practice witchcraft and magic and the occult because they're on the rise. Pagan, pagans, they call mm. themselves pagans. That's big increase. And what she says is very interesting. It kind of rings true from my own personal individual experience. The overall religion in this country is in decline badly. I mean, it really is going down. The attendance at churches, whether it be Catholic or even, even evangelical or um, Church of England is in free fall. And if you look at the statistics from over a decade ago, compared to recent published statistics, there's a massive uh, decline with one exception. <laughs> and the exception is Muslims and Islam, where the opposite is happening. Um, and she said in one point in the lecture that to be religious, to be Christian in this country is not cool. That's her words. It's not cool to be Christian, but it is cool. She says to be a Muslim. I mean, if you are a young person, this is what she is. You know, if you're a young person and you're a Muslim, it's cool. You know, it's not like, oh my God, how can you be this boring? Well, really you're a Muslim. You know, that it's kind of, it creates a, a little bit of a, you know, um, it's interesting. It, it get a reaction. But who cares if you're Christian? You know, it, it's like not interesting, not interesting. Um, so, and it is the case, I think, and I know some multiple sources that Muslims in Britain are overwhelmingly, and there's certainly I've experienced this, have held on to the traditional conservative understanding of their faith uh, and young people as well. I mean, I went to the, when I went to Juma uh, on yesterday um, to a mosque in uh, in Shepherd's Bush, and um, it's a Salafi mosque. Um, it's where um, Shamsi goes. Uh, in fact, he gave the kubba actually. Uh, and it's in a really not a very pleasant part of the, the the market. You know, it's where there's refuse outside. I mean, it's not the mosque fault, by the way. To stress this, it's the people who manage the Shepherd's Bush market. But the whole area it's in, the media area, is not pleasant. And I'm being polite. And you go into the mosque, and it's clean in the mosque, of course. Um, but it's not Regent's Park Mosque. It hasn't got a big chandelier. It's not glamorous. It doesn't have trustees who are the ambassadors of the Muslim nations like <laughs> Regent's Park Mosque does. All, all the trustees of the mosque are all the ambassadors more than Muslim countries on the planet. That, that is the, they, they're the management committee of Regent's Park Mosque, I kid you not. This mosque 
is uh, not like that, um, but it is packed. I mean, it's really, I mean, when we were praying, it was like, we were really squeezed. Um, and it's full of mainly young people, younger guys, I would say twenties and thirties perhaps. Um, and you know, you choose to go to a place where you wouldn't want to hang around very much because it's not, you know, for the reasons I mentioned. But the point is, if you go to the church down the road, the church down the road, and I, I know which building it is, um, it's never open. Apparently, very, very few people go there, I'm told by someone who knows. Um, and this is like a, a snapshot of what's going on here, that I I Islam is attracting young people. They're, they're solid and orthodox in their faith. Christianity is unfortunate. I say unfortunately, I really want Christianity to be strong in Britain as a counterbalance to the forces of secularism and kufr and so on. Um, it is the opposite. So the only success story is actually Islam in Britain. And this is something to be happy about. It's something to be excited about. Something is a good, it's a good news story. I, I know there's so many bad news stories around and whether it be Islamophobia, discrimination, all that of course is real and terrible. But there is actually an amazing good news story here is that Islam is robust and strong in Britain, I think, in terms of the adherence and the enthusiasm and the commitment of generations of pretty new younger people now. You will go to places which you wouldn't really want to go to because the area is not very nice, but they go there every, every Friday and they listen and they're serious about their faith and they really are committed. And this is amazing. This is an amazing success story in secular terms, if you like, mm. about a religious group in Britain, which is not found anywhere else. Mm. It's just not. Um, so well, uh, the issue of Hydra, which you touched on, is something else. And I'm not saying people shouldn't do Hydra or should do Hydra. I don't know the answer to that. You know, do we want to go to Malaysia or Indonesia? Yeah, it's a much more friendly context. But it's on the other side of the world. And, you know, we're not Indonesian. I'm not Malaysian. You're not, you know, we're, you know, there's more to it than just Islam there. It's about the culture, the language, the food, the temp, you know, the, the, the climate, you know, it's much more so than just doing, oh, well, you know, my, my kids are going to be taught decent values. Yeah, they might be, but what about the hospitals, the state of the hospitals? What about, you know, these are issues as well. Mm. It's complicated. I don't have answers, unfortunately, mm. but there, there is a good news story about Muslims in Britain according to uh, Linda Woodward's research. And that is, it seems to be the single success story that is bucking the trend of other religious decline. Whether or not Muslims also will succumb to decline, I suspect they, I suspect they won't. I think there's something about Islam um, which just retains uh, a powerful belief, mm. uh, actually. And even those who leave the faith, because there are some who do, are replaced by those who come in. So it seems to be like in America, a lot of people leave Islam, particularly second, third generation youngsters, because there's huge pressure from society. But nevertheless, they, their numbers are uh, uh, more than adequately counterbalanced by people coming into the faith. So overall, these the stats are holding up. I think even in America. Mm. Alhamdulillah. Yeah. What do you, what do you think? I think from a second generation immigrant perspective. Um, the story I always say is how my father came to the UK in the 90, late 1960s and that generation they had their view initially was that they're just going to stay here for work and go back right so they never envisioned right. Islam having any serious footing here and they would never have thought if someone was to tell them in 50 years time there's going to be like masjids in yeah. on every corner let's say in certain communities 
and they were making yeah. do by renting churches for Eid prayer and things like this. And I think part of that um, reason is that normally, you know how they say teenagers and people, generally young people, they have an identity crisis and whatnot. Um, I think people who are like second generation um, immigrants, they, they're much more likely to attach themselves to the identity of being a Muslim rather than anything else. Mm. And I think that has something to do with it in terms of younger Muslims becoming more practicing and whatnot, because their primary identity of how they see themselves is I'm a Muslim. Um, I might have Pakistani heritage or whatever else, but that becomes their dominant kind of system of being essentially. I think that's a good thing, but um, I don't know how that translates to further generations where they've already they're coming with that system so it's a bit different um it's a question mm. for sociologists that i think um your future guests will be better placed to address and be yeah. interesting to see absolutely so it was a positive and positive conclusion i guess um jazakallah khair thank yeah. you very much for coming on and giving us your time and yeah um thank you My pleasure very much for coming on. I, I do appreciate uh, what you do, and and uh, best wishes for what your your channel and all the projects you're involved in. I think you're extremely, as you say, creative and very busy in producing content. So, Jazakallah khair. So, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you. Take care.